Hello. The Bible reading for this message is taken from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. If you were in our service this morning, you would have heard that read. If you weren't there, we just want you to know how much we are missing you and how we long to be together again. And it would be a great idea to just push pause on this video now and go read through that passage of scriptures and then comes back. So that's James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The whole of the Christian life could be summed up as a series of tests of faith, of trials of faith, of temptation towards our faith. The letter of James could be summed up in exactly the same way, for it deals with uh, trials, testing, and temptation that come to trip up our faith on our way home to glory. Remember, at the heart of what James is trying to do is to encourage Christians to make it to the end and to not fall away because of the world, the temptation and the pollution uh, that it brings into our lives. In this section that we're looking at this morning, uh, James is talking about favoritism or partiality. Now I know at surface level you might be thinking, Surely, in the middle of everything that we're going through, there's something more important for us to be talking about uh, than showing favoritism. I mean, I'm confined to my home. Who am I going to show favoritism to? I'm not having to deal with anybody there that I usually would. But I hope that what you'll see this morning as we work through this part of the scriptures is the wonderful liberty of understanding how God works in our lives and how he wants us to work in the lives of others and relate in the lives of others. You see, the trial, the test, the temptation that James is dealing with this morning is that of people. Now, we all know that normally our entire life is bound up with dealing with and relating to people. And so what James is getting to this morning in this section is what is that going to look like in terms of your faith and how it relates to others. Uh, James is really expanding uh, the doctrine of faith in this little section. And today, he really breaks it up into two things. Firstly, faith that centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, faith that transcends social, relational distinctions. And what we need to understand is that if faith is the fundamental element in Christian character and conduct, as James is portraying for us in his letter, it is of utmost importance that we apply deep biblical thinking to what that means and what it holds out in our lives. So firstly, James talks about holding faith in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What James is talking about here is the faith of which Jesus is the object. When we talk about faith, uh, faith is trust. It is wholehearted commitment. Biblical faith can be summed up as trusting, relying, and depending on God as he has revealed himself in his word, through his promises, and in his actions. 
So to hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to profess in both word and deed to be a believer as Jesus Christ of Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, holding the faith in relations to others then looks like this: not showing any favoritism, not showing any form of partiality. The word is literally translated face reception or face receiving. You see, that's the central thought here. It's a simple one to express in words, but it's an incredibly difficult test of faith when it comes to actually passing it in the real world. Because favoritism, uh, partiality, discrimination has so many different faces. Uh, it can be in uh, power relationships, it can be in beauty relationships, it could be young relationships, it could be in older relationships, it could be in uh, skin color relationships, it could be in having or it could be in having not. And then when you begin to expound and expand on what those things are, you discover that one person might respond to a powerful person in another way uh, by fawning over them and trying to serve them. And another person might respond to a power relationship by wanting nothing to do that, to that towards that person. And so there you have the discrimination. Uh, people might discriminate one way because of a certain color and another person might discriminate a different way because of that same color. All of that stuff is playing out in James. Uh, it's, it's, it's like having... Um, you know, you get um, batteries, cell phone batteries, um, and in the review of a cell phone, or in any product for that matter that has a battery, they'll tell you that in the laboratory tests, this battery lasts for X number of hours. But the reviewer tells you that although the laboratory test had it lasting at 12 hours, in the real world it only lasted for 7. That's kind of what's going on here. In the laboratory test, we all know and would be quick to say favoritism is wrong, partiality is wrong, discrimination is wrong. All people are created in the image of God and therefore they are all equal in God's eyes. In the laboratory, it's really easy to say that. But in the real world, it's very, very different, isn't it? And so, how do we begin to think about not showing favoritism or partiality? And the reason that James starts with Jesus is because he's saying, hold on to Jesus. Remember Jesus. Look at the little title that he's given there. The, the, our glorious uh, Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of glory. When you begin to remember who Jesus is, and you remember that he is the Lord of glory, uh, everyone else pales in significance and in comparison to him. All of a sudden, all people are on equal footing when you realize how wonderful and how majestic and how powerful and how much authority Jesus actually has. When we are tempted to give people glory, uh, we need to remember Jesus because he is the only one to whom we ought to be giving glory. He is the only one who is to be elevated because he is the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't decide people's worth and value based on external considerations. Remember, man looks on the outside, but the Lord, well, the Lord looks on the heart. And so will we take things at face value or at faith value? Face value or faith value? James is encouraging us as we hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ not to take people at face value, but at faith value. 
to look at things not spiritually, not physically or materially or mentally, but rather spiritually. I think that if you think back to chapter 1, right at the end, James talks about true religion as keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. And one of the things that the world pollutes our minds and our actions with is this power relationship. Uh, and so James illustrates uh, this now in verses 2 to 4. So he says, look, here's the test of faith. How do you or who do you elevate and who do you put down? Here's the illustration. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When this happens, James says, you've discriminated. You've given glory to one and taken glory away from another. You become judges and your thoughts, well, they're evil. Now, in this instance, James is using the illustration of a gathering where there are other Christians, perhaps some kind of church uh, gathering, but it's certainly a gathering where Jesus is central. But I don't think he's limiting it to church gatherings. He's certainly saying that within the church, there should never be any form of favoritism or partiality. But I think that we'll see that he expands that, that in the course of all of your relationships, all of your dealings with people, there should be no favoritism shown. And this is not just about um, being, and what we need to understand is that this is not just about being wrong or bad or unhelpful in our behavior. This is an example of not holding the faith. It's a failure of the test or the temptation uh, that comes uh, from within us. What's more, James goes on in verse 5 and says that it goes against the way that God works. Listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? This goes completely against grace uh, this goes completely against the gospel because it goes completely against the way that God has chosen to work in the world. God chooses the weak things, the despised things, the things that don't look to be wise. He's not saying that he only chooses poor people. He's not saying that rich people are excluded. He's just saying that God chooses the things, the people that the world doesn't value. The things, the people, that the world doesn't consider important or powerful or have any possibility of making any difference whatsoever. God chooses to work with those people. God comes into the world and he saves the world not from the top down, which is the way that the world would save the world. No, he comes into the world and he saves it from the bottom up. God chose the poor. God chooses. And he chose them not to be poor, uh, but although poor physically, to be rich in faith. Their treasure is salvation. Faith is what makes us truly rich. It is the open hand of the soul to receive all the supplies that God has on offer. All the riches of heaven are ours, 
because of faith in Jesus Christ. And he has given to these people an inheritance. They are heirs of the kingdom. They possess it. They have become a part of it. Uh, partiality is contrary then to the very purposes of God because the poor are the special objects of God's concern. After all, didn't Jesus come to say that he has come to preach good news to the poor and to set the prisoners free? That's who he has come for. Uh, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. And blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know that they have nothing to offer God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew uh, chapter 5. So what God has done for the poor, and what we need to remember, is that what God has done for the poor is the same as what he has done for you. It's the same as what he has done for me. You were chosen. So will you now discriminate? You were chosen in your wretchedness, in your sinfulness to be saved. How dare anyone discriminate when we remember how it was that God went about choosing us? So we cannot evaluate people according to the standards of the world. Rather, we need to see through the eyes of faith from that spiritual vantage point. And friends, this is why we need that deep biblical thinking that we keep on talking about and not emotional knee-jerk reactions when it comes to dealing with any set of relationships, family relationships, work relationships, just relationships that happen in the world around us, those relationships that make up your life. We need to think deeply, spiritually, about each one of those interactions as they come across our path. The crazy thing is that we dishonor the poor, uh, but, the, but, but, but in dishonoring the poor um, and honoring the rich, the rich, verse 6, are actually exploiting you. They're dishonoring you. And what's more than that, they're also the ones, verse 7, who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. It's crazy. It sounds a, a lot like Stockholm Syndrome, doesn't it? Um, you keep pandering to the rich, but the rich are the ones who are abusing you. You keep on abusing the poor, but they're the ones whom God has chosen to work in and to work amongst. And yet you keep going back there, even though they persecute you, even though they sue you, even though they put you in prison, and even though they're the ones who are blaspheming the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, whom you are holding faith in. Brothers and sisters, how can this be? This should never be. So, the, 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 the heart of where James is trying to drive this is that no one relative to Jesus should receive glory, for we're all on equal footing before him. And so one of the questions that we've got to ask ourselves that you have to ask yourself is in the way that you relate to people, all people, to whom do you belong in terms of how your actions bear witness to your faith? Do your actions bear witness to you taking people at face value and on face reception? Or do they show you as taking actions based on faith? in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 
We're now driven even further and deeper into biblical thinking. James is trying to activate muscles deep in our minds and taking us to the very core of why this is the case. Verses 8 and onwards, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. James uh, explains this point by way of an illustration holding out two of the Ten Commandments. He says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is breaking all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. But if you do commit adultery, but you don't murder, you still become a lawbreaker. It's saying, listen, you know, let's just work on a relative sliding scale. I have a code. You ever watched a, you know, one of these television shows, one of these series, and um, you know, the mafia, the bad guy, they have a code. They're happy to do a whole bunch of things uh, wrong, but they, they just have one point that they won't go beyond. They won't break their code. And it's kind of like saying, listen, um, I don't commit adultery, but I'm okay with murder. There's something that's pretty absurd about that. Uh, James is saying that it just takes one sin, and you've broken the whole law. Uh, it's the end of summer at our house, and uh, so we've been uh, going through some of our summer toys, pool toys, floaties. You guys all know about those. Tell me, how many holes... Does it take in a floaty that goes in the pool to make the floaty flat? Just one. And I don't know about you, but I can never find it to patch it up. But it just takes one small hole and the floaty's dead. Well, it just takes one sin to break the whole law. The, the, the law, the way that humans tend to think about the laws, we tend to think about the law that we have that we'll deal with in our country. And we think about the law as being made up of many uh, different and often moving parts. Uh, the thinking goes that strict obedience in one part of the law makes up for partial compliance or even systematic neglect in another part of the law. It goes something like this. Um, I have never committed murder I'm strict about that. I have a code, and I just will not ever kill anyone. Good on you, okay? But because I will never kill someone, it's okay if I speed. I don't mind breaking the speed limits. But tell me, if you break the speed limit, are you a lawbreaker, even if you've never killed anyone? Well, yeah, you are a lawbreaker. But the way that biblical law works, it goes even further than that. Because the way that biblical law is put together is that it comes from one law giver. There aren't many departments in the kingdom of heaven. There aren't a multiplicity of ministers who contradict themselves in the kingdom of heaven. There is one God, there is one word, and there is one lawgiver. And the Bible teaches that the law of God is one because God is one. There is this essential unity to the whole law. And so to violate one part of the law is to resist the authority upon which all the precepts of the law are founded. So James says in chapter 
2 verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The thinking goes like this. Well, that rich person that walked in, I was loving them. I was loving my neighbor. I loved them a lot. I loved them so much. I'm loving my neighbor. But what about that other person that walked in who you didn't love? You see, a partial obedience in this instance is actually disobedience. Um, and there again is this absurdity towards being double-minded. When you put it like that, you're like, obviously you're breaking the law. You know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I can't love one person as I love myself and then not love another person as I love myself because I'm fulfilling with the one person, but I'm not fulfilling with the other person. There's that absurdity, that double-mindedness that's beginning um, to break in. And you say, well, who is my neighbor? Well, go read Luke chapter 10. Um, Jesus talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Basically says anyone who you come across. Actually, in Matthew 5, Jesus goes even further to say that your neighbor is, actually includes your enemy. He's also your neighbor. So your neighbor really is just the multiplicity of all of the sum of all the relationships of your life. So to not love anyone in your life as you love yourself is actually to sin and to break this royal law, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Friends, there isn't a relative sliding scale uh, that is at work here. Um, what he is talking about here is not the manner in which the law is to be kept. He's talking about the very nature of the law. And the heart is the demand that the Christian love his or her neighbor. The royal law here, as it works out, is love your neighbor as yourself, but it really, that encompasses the entire will of God. Because all the law and commandments rest on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the will of God for you to treat people and relate to people in this way. Friends, I'm not blind or dumb here. James is calling for radical obedience. He's calling for obedience fitting of those who are privileged to be heirs of the kingdom. Uh, he just invites us to come in to radical love. Radical love as we have experienced from our Heavenly Father. Uh, the law of the kingdom of God doesn't replace the Old Testament law, but rather it takes up within it the demands of God in the Old Testament. And what he is asking for from us is faithful obedience. So James is saying, hold on to Jesus Christ. He is saying, uh, hold on to the grace and the purposes of God at work that you have experienced and that God is working in others. He's saying, hold on to the royal law and drive it deep into your hearts, looking for radical faith and radical obedience. And then he says, lastly, in verses 12 and 13, hold on because judgment is coming. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
what James is calling us to hold on to and to remember at the end here is that yes, judgment is coming. And with the, the measure uh, that uh, you have given, uh, it is the measure by which you will be judged. Uh, those who have been forgiven much are able to hand out to forgiveness to others. Those who themselves have not been forgiven are not able to forgive others. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's the same concept that James is extrapolating here for us. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. This law has given you freedom and you have been shown mercy. But remember that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. James is calling us to go out there to do our deeds of mercy, to show mercy to those around us. Uh, not to be psychophants chasing after relationships that can help us, uh, but to invite those into our life, to invite those into our fellowship, those who cannot invite us back. Uh, to show mercy and to remember that it is mercy that triumphs over judgment. On that last day, mercy will stand up and bear witness to us and to our acts. Uh, when judgment is uh, held up against us, will we say, Lord, you have shown us mercy and we receive that mercy. And that mercy uh, was shown in our faithfulness and our faithful obedience as we demonstrated and showed mercy to others. And so, friends, to sort of bring all of this together, uh, the passage is about people. And it's about the people in your life. And the passage is about faith. And it's about your faith. And so as you go out into this world and as you interact with people and as you treat people, will you treat them based on face or will you treat them based on faith? Knowing that this is according to the purpose and the will of God. Knowing that this is holding on to the commands that God has given. Uh, knowing uh, that it is by this uh, that our actions will be judged on the last day. Will we remember with this great encouragement that mercy triumphs over judgment? James isn't ending on a downer, by the way. He's ending on, on, on the biggest upper that you could possibly want. He's saying like, yes, judgment is coming. Remember that. But remember that mercy is what triumphs in the end. So do your acts of mercy towards all those people that the Lord brings into your life. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God, we so desperately need your help when it comes to this, to showing faith towards other people in our lives. For we are always tested and tempted to show favoritism and partiality, for that is the way of the world. Father, remove this pollution from us. Help us to listen and to remember and today to hold the faith so that we might go out to love and to serve all people because you first loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.